It is Wednesday, June 19th here in Draft Shark Studios in Rochester, New York. Welcome to the Fantasy Football Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Schaff. With me, as always, is Jared Smola. And we are now into week five of our projection series on the podcast. We opened with the AFC East, hit the NFC East. We ran through the NFC West, the AFC East the past two weeks. I'm sorry, the AFC West. Uh, Now it's time for really what is perennially perennially one of the top fantasy divisions at this point. It's, It's NFC South Day. The division might be even more interesting for 2019 than it has been. We've got a new coach in Tampa. We've got a new old offensive coordinator in Atlanta. We have a repaired shoulder for that quarterback in Carolina. We have a biggie-sized Mark Ingram in New Orleans. Of course, Jared, folks can find our actual projections for all of these guys on DraftSharks.com right now, plus plenty more. Uh, That includes your latest sneak peek player profile on a dude from today's division. Yeah, O.J. Howard, who I, I I think he's right in that mix to be the fourth tight end. I mean, we all, we all know it's uh, Kelsey, Kittle, Ertz is the top three. I think um, O.J. Howard, Evan Ingram, Hunter Henry kind of battling for that fourth spot. They all sort of have some pluses and minuses. Yeah, I certainly agree that he is in that mix. And we'll have more to say about O.J. Howard later in the show. His and several hundred more player profiles will go live on DraftSharks.com at the beginning of next week. So become a DS Insider now. You can absorb all that preseason information. You can get ready to dominate your drafts. Let's move on now, though, to the NFC South. And, Jared, we're going to start with the Atlanta Falcons, where on the relevant coaching changes front, they've got Dirk Cutter in as the offensive coordinator. That has happened before for them back in 2012 through 2014. Cutter was the OC there before he jumped to the Bucks job, spent one year as the coordinator in Tampa, and then took over as the head coach. When he was in Atlanta, they went 63%, 69%, and 64% pass in those three seasons. His Bucks then went a little bit less so, but leaned toward the pass over the past two years. I think we're going to see plenty of passing here. Yep, definitely. All three of Cutter's uh, Falcons teams finished top eight in the NFL in pass attempts. All three finished top seven in passing yards. All three finished top 11 in passing touchdowns. So obviously good news for Matt Ryan and the, the pass catchers. Yeah, and the Falcons ranked eighth, 14th, and eighth in yards under Cutter before. Seventh, 20th, and 12th in scoring. Not quite as good. Top eight in yardage every year since then. So he's probably coming back to a better offense than what he left the first time around. Just three dirt cutter offenses in his 12 years as a coordinator or head coach have ranked higher in scoring than in yardage. Two of those were just one spot higher. Five of his past seven offenses ranked among the top eight in the league in pass attempts. I think we just referred to all of those. Four of those ranked among the top four. All five also ranked 22nd or lower in rushing attempts. And I think that these Falcons are built to continue that trend. We'll move on now to the projected pass run split. What do you have on that? Yeah, so I mean, like we've mentioned, um, you know, the Falcons went pass heavy undercutter in those three seasons. I agree. I think they're set up to be a pass leaning team this season. So yeah, I, I have Atlanta projected at 63% pass, which is actually the highest pass percentage I projected for any team this season. Yeah, and I have the exact same percentage. I'm sure our numbers differ a little bit um, based on counting sacks, but uh, I also think that this could be good for 
total plays in the offense because Atlanta actually fell off over the past three years in total plays while the Bucks have climbed over the past four years in that area. So I think more passing, I think more total plays, um, more volume. That's going to help the, ne- the next guy we talk about in QB notes. Yeah, let's talk Matt Ryan, who um, was excellent under Dirk Cutter in those three. He's really just been excellent for the past decade now. But um, in those three seasons under Dirk Cutter, um, Matt Ryan completed 67.4% of his passes, averaged 290 yards and 1.8 touchdowns per game. He finished those seasons sixth, tenth, and seventh among quarterbacks in fantasy points. And he also had his three largest pass attempt totals ever over that stretch. Since then, over the past three years, no quarterback has scored more fantasy points than Matt Ryan, which would probably surprise plenty of fantasy players. The efficiency stats under Dirk Cutter have not been, were not out of line with what he's done since then. Matt Ryan had two of his three best yards per attempt rates over those three seasons with Cutter, two of his best TD rates, two of his best completion rates. So again, he's been good overall. He was good under Dirk Cutter. We should see plenty of passing. It should be good for Matt Ryan's fantasy value. Right. The guy's been a top 10 fantasy quarterback in seven of the last nine seasons and has really shown no signs of slowing down. Last year, Ryan finished fourth league-wide in completion rate. He was eighth in adjusted completion rate, which takes into account drops and throwaways. Um, He was sixth league-wide in yards per attempt, and he finished 11th among 30 qualifying quarterbacks in PFF's passing grade. So still still a high-end passer. He gets his top four target getters from last year back, Julio Jones, Mohamed Sanu, Kellen Ridley, Austin Hooper. And you know, like we've been saying, he has experience in this offense. So I, I don't think the change in OC is a concern. Over at running back, we see much more change than at other positions. Devontae Freeman is back healthy. Tevin Coleman is gone. Uh, Cutter had Freeman for his 2014 rookie season, but that was a a fairly light volume season. Steven Jackson was the lead back that year. 190 carries, 27 targets. Devontae Freeman did carry 65 times second on that team. 37 targets that year as well. And there was Jaquiz Rogers there with 58 carries, 40 targets as well. Freeman then, of course, broke out the season after, led all fantasy running backs after a week one Tevin Coleman injury. Uh, Ranked sixth across fantasy formats in 2016. Then 2017 finished 13th in PPR, 12th in non-PPR. Despite playing 14 games, dealing with knee issues that that limited him in even some of the games he played late in the season. And of course, last season, Devontae Freeman lost the entire season to a foot injury. Back healthy now, Tevin Coleman's gone. So that leaves just Ito Smith and Kadri Allison and a bunch of other dudes behind them. Yeah, back healthy Freeman is still just 27 years old. Um, and, and I think that 2016 season might be a good proxy for what we can expect this year. And like you said, uh, Freeman finished sixth among running backs in PPR points that year. He saw 54% of the Falcons carries, 12% of the Falcons targets. Those aren't monster numbers. I think they're numbers he can reach again this season. So I, I do think his upside, if he can stay healthy this year, extends right into the top 10 running backs. Yeah, and what I want to see is what the team and what Cutter uh, envisioned for Freeman as a receiver at this point, because the first time that Dirk Cutter was around, you know, I already mentioned the the numbers a little bit, but those previous Falcons offenses of his found 53 and 52 catches for Jaquiz Rogers. They found 59 combined catches for Rogers and Devontae Freeman in that final season. Of course, none of those three totals were for the primary back for those teams. Now, Is that because Dirk Cutter likes to have a primary ball carrier and another guy who handles more of the receiving load and is Ito Smith going to be that player? Or is it because those guys were Steven Jackson right at the end of his career? 
and then Michael Turner, who is, has, was never the receiver that Devontae Freeman is. I, I think that's going to have to play out a little bit over the summer. At this point, I would not say that I'm worried about Freeman's receiving outlook, but I'm wondering. Well, and EO Smith was not good in the passing game last year. He averaged 5.6 yards per catch. Um, he finished 36th in yards per target among 39 running backs with 30-plus targets last year. He finished 37th among those 39 in yards per route run. So unless he takes a big step forward, I think Freeman is pretty clearly the the best pass-catching running back on the Falcons. Yeah, and I agree. That's why I'm not worried about Freeman on that front at all because, frankly, I don't think Ito Smith is that good. Uh, He was below average, below replacement level in both the Football Outsiders rushing efficiency metrics. He was 44th and 45th among 53 qualifiers in receiving efficiency. He was 50th in, in running back grade. Uh, on pro football focus. He was inefficient, as you said, yardage wise, and not only inefficient, but three and a half yards per carry compared with 4.8 for Tevin Coleman, 5.6 yards per catch compared with 8.6 for Tevin Coleman. So even within the Falcons framework, he was much worse than his teammate. Uh, Ito Smith was better in college, of course, five and a half yards per carry career there, 10.3 yards per catch, did have three seasons of 40 plus reception. So even though Ito Smith was not very good, not very efficient last year, that certainly doesn't mean he can't be going forward. Yeah, I think the best thing you can say about Smith's uh, rookie season, he finished 19th among 71 running backs in elusive rating, which you know measures what a running back does beyond the blocking he receives. But to me, he's he's closer to a Devontae Freeman handcuff than a standalone fantasy option. I think the on the optimistic side, projections-wise for Ito Smith, you can look at what Tevin Coleman did playing the 1B to Devontae Freeman's 1A between 2016 and 2017. In those seasons, Coleman averaged nine carries a game, three targets per game. I think that that's sort of the high end of what I'm expecting from Smith this season, as long as Freeman's healthy. Yeah, I absolutely think that he is a handcuff. And I think that the case for him is that, yeah, he'll get something when Devontae Freeman's in there and Devontae Freeman has struggled with lower body injuries over the past season and a half. Right. So we'll get more to him in a few minutes. Uh, Kadri Allison is, I think, the the only other guy really worth any focus here. Um, He's a rookie. He was a late-round rookie. I was hoping that they were going to take somebody better than him to challenge Ito Smith. Um, Allison did have an 1,100-rushing-yard season as a freshman. He had a 1,200-rushing-yard season as a senior. Limited usage in between. Above-average speed score at 4.5840 at 228 pounds at the Combine. And that's all about – that's about all I got for him. Yeah, I mean, I think the 228 pounds, that's sort of what he brings that Smith and Freeman don't. He's that bigger back. So maybe he, you know, vultures a few goal line touchdowns, but we'll we'll see. I'm not too worried about him at this point. Yeah, I agree. I'll be watching him versus Zito Smith, but not, I'm not worried about anybody behind De- Devontae Freeman. Yep. Pass catcher notes. We all know Julio Jones cannot score touchdowns. <laughs> and if you went into last season believing that, then you were probably crowing over the first seven games where he had zero touchdowns. But then over the final nine, Julio Jones scored eight of them. He scored in seven of those nine games. It was his fourth season of eight-plus touchdowns. It matched his second-best tally in red zone touchdowns. Julio Jones still didn't rank among the top red zone targets, tied for just 20th in that category, according to NFL Savant, despite ranking first in total targets. Just tied for 16th the year before in red zone targets, despite ranking 7th in total targets. But, I mean, at this point, we're going to take that as part of the overall Julio Jones profile. Right, exactly. I mean, he, he's still scored the second most total fantasy points among wide receivers over the past five seasons behind only Antonio Brown. He's finished 
top seven among wide receivers in PPR points in five straight seasons, including a couple second place finishes. He showed no signs of slowing down last year. He led all 82 wide receivers with 50 plus targets in yards per route run last year. He ranked third in PFF's receiving grades. And Jones has done just fine in Cutter's offense. Um, in 36 career games under Cutter, 6.2 catches per game, 94 yards, half a touchdown per game. So that's a full season pace of 100 catches, almost 1,500 yards, and eight touchdowns. And his red zone targets per game were basically the same under Cutter as they have been since then. So it hasn't really been a changing coaching philosophy there. It's, you know, it's just that he's not likely to be the guy who scores us 12 plus touchdowns. We'll take that if he's catching 100, 110 balls. Yep, exactly. Austin Hooper is the next pass catcher I want to mention out of order compared with others. But I think that he could be in for a significant touchdown bump under Dirk Cutter. Could be the biggest beneficiary of this change. In 12 years as a coordinator or head coach, Dirk Cutter's offenses have thrown 32.7% of their touchdowns to tight ends. Over the past six years, four of his his offenses have topped 36% in that category. Austin Hooper, meanwhile, has been with the Falcons for the past three years. In that time, the Falcons have thrown just 19% of their touchdowns to tight ends. So that's about double from what he's seen so far to what Dirk Cutter's tight ends have seen lately. Hooper tied for 90th in red zone targets in the league in 2017. He tied for 46th last year. He was tied for, just to give some examples, he was tied with Cameron Brait. He was tied with Kendrick Bourne. He was tied with Jeff Hireman, who played, what, 11, 12 games last year. He was behind Josh Reynolds, who was a fourth receiver for the Rams. Austin Hooper has not gotten enough in the red zone. At the same time, O.J. Howard and Cameron Brait had 11 touchdown catches combined last year. They had 12 together in 2017. Cameron Brait had eight of them in 2016. Brait and Austin Safarian Jenkins had seven on just 69 targets in 2015 under Dirk Cutter. Austin Hooper sat out minicamp with a reportedly minor ankle injury. We'll have to monitor that heading into summer, especially because he finished last year being a bit limited by knee and ankle issues. But if that ankle is not an issue come this summer, I think Austin Hooper has breakout potential. I mean, he almost broke out last year. I mean, the guy finished sixth among tight ends in PPR points, seventh and seventh and non-PPR. I like those red zone numbers because, you know, that that's sort of all that was missing from his profile last year. He finished eighth among tight ends and targets. He was fourth among tight ends and catches, sixth in receiving yards. So if he can, you know, score another couple times, you know, he, he could, again, be a top five, six tight end. Yeah, I think he's a sneaky a sneaky high-end potential uh, fantasy tight end this year. Yep, yep. Back to the receivers, Calvin Ridley tied for sixth in the league in touchdown catches last year, tied for 68th in red zone targets. So he's probably not likely to score as many touchdowns again. But I will mention that he's just the ninth rookie to ever catch 10-plus touchdowns since the AFL-NFL merger in 1970. Five of those nine saw their touchdowns decrease the following season, but the previous three who scored exactly 10 touchdowns like Calvin Ridley did went to 17, 13, and 9 the following year. So these aren't guys that that fell off a cliff in that category. And all nine of the players on that list had another season of nine-plus touchdowns within their next two years. Yeah, interesting notes there. You know, fifteen point six percent touchdown rate for Ridley last year. That that's you know likely going to regress. But yeah, I mean, he he could score another seven, eight, nine touchdowns in this offense. I do, do think it's going to be one of the better passing games in the league. Um, Ridley, another note on him. He was just volatile from week to week last year. Had had some monster games. He had six games of sixteen plus PPR points 
He also had seven games of fewer than eight PPR points. So, and I think that type of up and down weekly production is going to continue just with Julio Jones here and the other mouths to feed, like Austin Hooper, like Mohamed Sanu. Yeah, I agree. We could see some target bump here, but I don't think we're going to see a huge growth in target share with basically the same group back uh, as last year. I don't think that he's going to pull away from Mohamed Sanu on that front. And I think that's going to continue his his week-to-week volatility. It'll be interesting that he admitted last year that he hit a rookie wall. Uh, mm-hmm. I think it might have been just after the season he was talking about it. So it'll be a, I'll be interested to see if we get maybe a steadier second half from Calvin Ridley and that raises his numbers overall. But Mohamed Sanu up next is, is still around. They were they were two targets apart last year in total targets, and Sanu had I believe it was an ankle injury somewhere in the middle of the season that limited his playing time and targets in two of those games. If you look after that, in the final five weeks, he saw about 21% of Falcons targets versus about 15% for Calvin Ridley. Hmm. So again, that's in that range where, you know, it's post rookie wall. Be curious to see if Ridley is better, if Ridley is, is more ready for an NFL season this time around. And if Sanu's target share picks back up at all with full health. I projected Ridley to out-target Sanu by like, I think, you know, 10 or so targets. But it was still, there's enough passing attempts to go around here to get Sanu, you know, inside at least like wide receiver four range in the rankings. The guy's finished 30th and 31st among wide receivers in PPR points the last two years. Um, he, he doesn't bring a high weekly ceiling, but he's a nice floor guy. Sanu has 24 games of 10 plus PPR points over the past two seasons. Only 23 wide receivers have more outings of double digit points. Nice. Yeah, he did have those two top 32 finishes the past two years, as you mentioned. Also finished wide receiver 53 back in 2016. Saw 81 targets that year before jumping the past two years. So we neither of us really expects Calvin Ridley to pull away from Mohamed Sanu target-wise. I do think there's some room for, for Sanu to drop down a little bit, uh, but people are never going to be excited about him in drafts. I projected Sanu at 15%. Ridley at 16%. I still found 93 targets for Sanu. You know, I think he remains right. fine for what he is. Yeah, I mean, the, the guys like Ridley and Sanu are the ones that benefit from us projecting this Falcons offense to be one of the past heaviest. Who I like is Austin Hooper down at tight end 11. Came out mm-hmm. seventh for me in my half PPR projections. I will take him straight up over David Njoku, Vance McDonald, and Eric Ebron. He came out just ahead of Jared Cook. I'd probably alternate between Austin Hooper and Jared Cook in current drafting. But Hooper's going almost three rounds behind Jared Cook, so that's not really a decision I have to make. And he's going a round and a half behind Njoku, uh, who's who's just in front of him in tight end ADP. So even if you don't want to take Hooper when those guys are still on the board, he's a good reason to wait when you're deciding whether to take somebody like Njoku. Right. Vance McDonald and Austin Hooper had been my targets if I was unable to get one of the top six tight ends. Vance McDonald's ADP has climbed into the seventh round in June drafts. Austin Hooper is still sitting the late ninth. So, you know, at those prices, Hooper is pretty easy target for me again, if I'm unable to get one of those top six guys. Anybody else in the who you like section? Uh, Mohamed Sanu, like we said, are going in the 15th round. I mean, that's just crazy. Um, and then Devontae Freeman um, going in the mid-third, I think, is fair at running back 15. Again, I think that the injury risk is pretty much baked in at running back 15. I think if we get even 14 games out of him, he's a he's a pretty good bet to, to outproduce that ADP. I agree. I mean, we talk about injury risk, but it, if you're taking 
an injury risk guy, you're not expecting him to go down in week two. That's abnormal. You're expecting a guy to miss a couple of games and we can deal with that. I would take Freeman straight up over Marlon Mack and Damian Williams, who are both ahead of him. And Freeman is 10 ADP spots behind Nick Chubb. I would probably take shares of both of those guys if they were right next to each other. But like I said with Hooper, the fact that Chubb is nearly a full round ahead is a reason that you can wait on Chubb, take Devontae Freeman. And then if if, if Freeman's gone, Aaron Jones is still on the board. So another guy that I, I'm, I would alternate between Freeman and Aaron Jones. Yeah, and and Marlon Mack going ahead of Freeman in full PPR leagues is crazy, but I, but we'll we'll save that for the uh, AFC South show. I agree. On the who I don't front, I'm not on Ito Smith, as I might have alluded to earlier. Right behind him in ADP right now, Deontay Foreman, Peyton Barber, Damian Harris, Naheem Hines, Deion Lewis. I I guess I could see Ito Smith over Peyton Barber, but the rest of those guys at least beat him on upside, and I think in Foreman you get. Basically, what you hope Ito Smith will be, but I think Foreman has the chance to overtake Lamar Miller, even if both players are healthy. Whereas that is absolutely not part of Ito Smith's reality. Yep, I agree. Not interested in Ito Smith. Um, not taking Calvin Ridley in the mid first fifth round as a twenty fourth wide receiver off the board. I just you know don't haven't projected for enough targets to really pay off that without another high touchdown rate. And then Matt Ryan, I really like. But he's the sixth quarterback in ADP going the mid-eighth round. I can get guys I projected similar or even higher than Matt Ryan like two or three rounds later. Yeah, and I mean you can get even guys like Phillip Rivers and Kirk Cousins who at least have those high weak possibilities much later in the draft. Exactly. On to the Carolina Panthers where the coaching changes don't really present us with anything new. North Turner goes into his second season as the offensive coordinator. Last year's Panthers under Turner climbed from two straight number 19 rankings in yardage to 10th in total yards. The scoring was right in line with the previous two years, and we saw the highest passing rate of Cam Newton's career despite his second-half shoulder trouble. Yeah, the Panthers ranked 16th in pass rate last year, which for them is, yeah, like you said, very high. Their highest finished prior to that was 22nd, and that came in Newton's rookie year in 2011. Beyond that, their highest finish was 25th in pass rate. I think some of that was probably due to them going 7-9 and nine and especially having a, that rough stretch in the second half of the season. They went 66% pass in their nine losses last year. They went just 50% pass in their seven wins last season. One time all year, the Panthers hit 54% or higher in pass rate in a victory. They had seven straight losses from Week 10 through Week 16. They went. Um, they were 55.4% pass through week nine, so up until that stretch, and then after that, pushed their number higher. For the team, I landed at 56% pass, 44% run. I could see it going a little bit higher, but that would still be yeah. the third highest pass rate since Cam Newton arrived. And the two higher rates that we have seen, as I mentioned, one came last year when they were 7-9, and nine. the other came in 2016 when they went 6-10. and 10. Yeah, I'm a 56.5% pass, so down a percentage point from last year. Good notes you had on there on their uh, run rates and wins and losses. I do think, though, it's just having a guy like Christian McCaffrey as your lead back sort of almost forces you to be more of a, you know, not a pass-heavy team, but I think it forces them to lean more 
towards the pass than they previously had just because, you know, McCaffrey is so good in the passing game, and he's not a guy you really want to hand it off to 20 times. Yeah, I think McCaffrey plus good young receivers versus what they've had recently means that they should lean a little bit more toward the pass than they have, which will still be fairly low, you know, by league standards, but high versus recent Panthers standards. Yeah, exactly. On QB notes, Cam Newton, of course, the big note, the big note with Cam Newton is coming off the shoulder surgery, and we're going to have to watch and see how he looks through camp and preseason with that. Last year, though, highest completion rate of his career by a significant margin. He had 11 straight games of two-plus touchdown passes from week two through week 13, then two straight TD-less outings before he got shelved for the season. Through week 13, he was the number two quarterback in fantasy. Of course, we all know the only guy that was ahead of him. Uh, and Cam Newton rebounded from a bad 2016 a couple years ago to finish QB3 in 2017. He was QB1 in 2015, and then four other seasons of QB8 or better before that. And the worst among those was back in 2014 when he missed two games with injuries. Right. He's pretty much been a top six fantasy quarterback whenever he's had a healthy season. Um, Like you said, career high completion rate last year, career high 33.6 attempts per game, which, you know, again, is a result of them being a bit more pass leaning under North Turner. And of course, Newton just gives you the massive rushing upside, 4,800 rushing yards over the past eight seasons, which, which is more than a thousand more than any other quarterback. Newton has 58 rushing touchdowns since entering the league. No other quarterback has more than 18 over that stretch. So he, he just, you know, he blows away every other quarterback in rushing history. Of course, you know, now we have guys like Lamar Jackson, Josh Allen, Kyler Murray, who might sort of threaten that. But I still think, you know, Newton's a good bet to finish top five in the league in, you know, fantasy points among quarterbacks on the ground. Yeah, even with more passing last year, his his rushing attempts were still in line with previous. His yards per carry were still in line with previous. Uh, One thing to watch, though, will be is whether the Panthers run Cam Newton less near the goal line. Last year gave us his lowest percentage, uh, the lowest percentage of his career in terms of Panthers carries inside the 10-yard line. He has been trending downward there over the past three years. It was also near his low for percentage of their carries inside the five. I could see them trying to limit his exposure in that range where you know, it's it's not just the quarterback running and getting hit, but you're more likely to lower the shoulder. You're facing bigger players. I could see them trying to pull back a little bit near the goal line. I also don't think that that threatens his overall rushing value too much though. Right. Yeah. It would make sense for them to limit him a bit there, but yeah, I mean, I think Newton is still one of the best bets to lead quarterbacks and rushing touchdowns in 2019 yeah five of his past six seasons have included between four and six rushing touchdowns so I think may what I what I think is he's probably less likely to go beyond those six rushing touchdowns than he has been to this point but I still think he's a pretty good bet to get into that four to six range yep I agree uh, and as I've mentioned before, he might have the best group of pass catchers since he arrived. We'll get to those guys in a few minutes but I, he he carries the passing upside that he showed us last season yep for sure. On to the running back notes. Why don't you hit us with some Christian McCaffrey? I mean, the guy was awesome. We, we know that. Don't need to spend too much time on, on him. Um, third among running backs in total touches. Third among running backs in total opportunities, which is carries plus targets. McCaffrey finished as a top 24 PPR running back in 15 of his 16 games. The only time he didn't was in week 17 when he was pulled early. So, you know, just an incredibly safe weekly option. Also finished eight weeks as a top six PPR running back. So also, you know, ha- had that upside. 
Yeah, he has led the Panthers in targets in each of his two seasons. That gap widened between him and the rest of the team last year. I think that'll change in 2019. I don't know that he won't lead the team, but I don't think he'll be such a dominant number one among Panthers. But the rushing load doubled, nearly doubled for Christian McCaffrey last season. 7.3 carries per game in 2017, 13.7 carries per game last year. And that number trended up during the season, 15.2 carries per game for Christian McCaffrey from week eight through week 16. As you mentioned, he barely played in week 17. So I throw that one out. Came back for spring workouts looking like Latimer from the program. So I don't think we have to worry too much about his strength. And the Panthers added just Jordan Scarlett and uh, undrafted free agent Elijah Holyfield behind him. So they clearly don't have plans to give anybody else the ball that much. Yeah, and I think McCaffrey could be a candidate for more rushing touchdowns this season. He was fourth league-wide with 29 carries inside the 10, seventh league-wide with 12 carries inside the 5, but he tied for just 14th in the NFL with seven seven rushing touchdowns. So, you know, he 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 got the ball more near the goal line, uh, you know, versus what he actually scored. So, you know, I I could see him scoring, you know, 9, 10 rushing touchdowns this year. Yeah, I mean, there's really nothing to dislike about Christian McCaffrey at this point. Exactly. Pass catcher notes, we'll start with DJ Moore. As I mentioned, Christian McCaffrey was not only the target leader for the Panthers last year, but also led the team in touchdown catches with six. Before that season, four straight Carolina teams had a wide receiver with at least seven touchdown catches. I think DJ Moore is your best bet to do that this season. 18.1% target share for him after he stepped into the starting lineup in week eight. I would expect that to at least stay in that range, potentially grow this year. 18% would be right around wide receiver 25 range, uh, according to last year's numbers. His rise into the lineup, though, also coincided last year with Cam Newton's shoulder becoming an issue. So I don't think we've even really gotten a good look at DJ Moore plus Cam Newton yet. Right. I mean, he he ranked 21st among wide receivers in PPR points over his final 10 games. He played at least 70% of the snaps in those final 10 after, you know, failing to reach 70% in his first six games. Talked about the touchdowns. Moore is a, is a, virtual lock to for positive touchdown regression this season um he scored on just 3.6 percent of his catches last year um was really super efficient otherwise he was 15th among 82 wide receivers in yards per target led all 82 wide receivers with 50 plus targets in yards after catch per reception and i think you know that carries over from his college days when he was really good after the catch i think we can expect that to continue also added some value on the ground, um, 13 carries for 172 yards. Those marks ranked fourth and second among wide receivers. Do you think that DJ Moore would have been the top rookie wide receiver in this class if he come out this year? Oh, yeah, I think I think so pretty easily. Curtis Samuel also there. Been there for a couple years now, but still very young. Second among Panthers in touchdown catches last year. So he could certainly threaten what I said for DJ Moore being the mm-hmm. top wide out. But there's room for both of these guys. Just like Moore, Curtis Samuel's biggest stretch of usage as a receiver came late when Cam Newton was winding down. Also had eight carries, which tied for 12th among all receivers last year. And that followed a college career in which he carried 172 times. So I don't think that that's an area to dismiss for Curtis Samuel. Right. Samuel, um, over the season's final six games, 31st among wide receivers in PPR points. So he... he um, you know, was was actually slightly ahead of DJ Moore in fantasy scoring over those last six weeks. Saw only one fewer target than DJ Moore over the uh, final six weeks. Um, three fewer catches and actually had one more receiving yard. So Samuel and Moore, you know, production wise, weren't far off over that over those final six games. And I think that the target counts for both players can be helped by the tight end situation that I'll get to in a minute. Yeah. But 
I think one more receiver worth mentioning, Jarius Wright, who saw his the second largest target total of his career last year in his first season with the Panthers, also played under North Turner in Minnesota. So mm-hmm. he came to Carolina at, along with North Turner. 87.3% of his snaps in the slot last year, 32.4% for DJ Moore, 25.8% for Curtis Samuel. So it looks like Wright fits nicely as the slot man in between the two young guys on the outside. Yeah, I think he's the favorite for the third wide receiver job. They did add Chris Hogan, Torrey Smith still hanging around. But, you know, th- this isn't an offense. When you talk about, you know, it's not going to be super pass heavy. You have McCaffrey there. You have DJ Moore, Curtis Samuel. I don't think it's an offense where we want to be looking for fantasy value beyond those those guys. I agree. Uh, on the tight end, though, Greg Olson refractured his right foot in week one last year. Then he tore the plantar fascia in that foot on December 2nd. Of course, originally fractured that foot the season before week two. Uh, had issues even after he returned from that. Was still limited by it. I, I'm starting out low on Greg yeah. Olson right now. I'm willing to come up if we get to training camp and he's healthy. He's practicing every day. And they're talking about him looking like the old Greg Olson. But at the moment, I'm I'm heading in thinking of him like Tyler Eifert. Yeah, he, he's cheap enough in drafts where I wouldn't argue against taking a shot on him late. His ADP is in the 14th round right now. But even there, there's tight ends I'm more excited to take. Uh, I, I just don't know if we're ever going to see the old Greg Olson again. Um, even he, So he's played 12 full games over the past two seasons. I, I wouldn't even call him healthy games because I don't know you know, how, how healthy that foot was. But in those 12 games, uh, 3.3 catches per game, 35 yards, 0.4 touchdowns. So that's 9.2 PPR, it's PPR points per game. That would have ranked 14th among tight ends last year. And that's way down from his previous five seasons. He topped 11.5 PPR points in each of the previous five years. So even if Olsen stays healthy this year, I don't expect him to come anywhere close to what, you know, we were getting from him in those previous five years before the last two. And the other component to that is that Ian Thomas stepped up in Greg Olson's absence last year, 5.8 targets per game in the seven games that Olson missed, plus the one that he left early following the foot fracture. Ian Thomas had four plus catches in four of the final five games last year. He's an above average speed guy and athleticism guy for the position. Ian Thomas did sit out spring workouts with some unspecified left leg injury. At least I haven't seen it specified yet. Uh, Ron Rivera said he hopes to have Ian Thomas ready for training camp. So, you know, another injury situation at the position. But I think the fact that Ian Thomas played well last season further hinders the upside on Greg Olson. Yeah, Thomas was fifth among tight ends in PPR points over those final five weeks after Olson suffered his second foot injury. So, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if this turns into like a you know tight end by committee where Thomas is playing most of the early down snaps, maybe, and they're bringing in Olson for like you know third downs and red zone stuff, and that that would kind of make both these guys useless useless in fantasy. Who I like is Cam Newton. I think he's a steal at quarterback 13 right now. Even if you don't want to trust his shoulder all season, he's as good a bet for ceiling weeks as anybody at the position yeah um 13th quarterback off the board it's it's crazy if he if he's anywhere close to healthy he's gonna he's gonna beat that pretty easily and then I think both of Newton's wide receivers are fine values I lean towards Curtis Samuel just because he's going about four rounds later he's going in the ninth round versus DJ Moore in the fifth but I think you you can take either guy in drafts and even take them both in best ball I agree. I have taken both of them, and I agree that Curtis Samuel is the the better value right now. He's 19 spots behind DJ Moore in wide receiver ADP. He's at wide receiver 44. And as I said, the the whole rushing component makes him even more attractive in best ball than he will be in lineup setting because you can get these 
um, you know, these freaky kind of unpredictable weeks. Yeah, I mean, new and more and Samuel, if you're looking to stack in best ball, might be the best, like, you know, threesome you can get on any team right now at cost. Um, who I don't like, the tight ends, which I already dug into a little bit. I've taken a couple of shares of each of them, especially Ian Thomas early. Uh, I've taken Greg Olson, as you said, right at the end as a third tight end. But that's why I say I'm looking at him like Tyler Eifert. I'll take him at the end of the draft. And if he has a couple of Greg Olson weeks, awesome. He's paid off for me. But I'm not betting on that definitely happening. Yeah, I'm willing to come up on Olson if you know we hear good things this summer and you know maybe see him in some preseason action. But right now, he's just not a guy I'm interested in. Although, again, in the 14th round, tight end 23 in ADP, I, I won't argue against taking him. But just um, it's more of a wait and see situation for me. Yeah, I mean, a tight end three at the end of the draft, there's not really a bad pick unless you just pick somebody who's not playing. (laughs) Right. On to the Saints where, oh, you don't have anybody else in the uh, the who I don't like section, do you? Nope. On to the Saints. All right. On to the Saints, as I was saying. Relevant coaching changes, absolutely nothing because Sean Payton has been there since 2006. I'm pretty sure that that puts him one year ahead of Mike Tomlin as the second longest tenured head coach in the league now that Mike McCarthy and Marvin Lewis have gotten booted. Yep, so Payton back. We have seen a change, though, in the Saints offense over the past two years now, you know, a, a shift pretty heavy towards the run. Um, last year, Saints ran at 47.6% of the time, seventh highest run rate in the league. That was up from about 45% in 2017. Those marks are just much higher than what we had seen from the Saints, you know, under Payton for most of his tenure. Just for example, previous three seasons from 2014 to 2016, Saints ran on 38, 37, and 37.5% of their snaps. Yeah, I have them even as the fourth most run-heavy team last year, um, working sacks into the equation. Tenth, that's, that's even up further from 10th in 2017 and – it's it, it works in the four games that they played without Mark Ingram last season. Over the first four weeks, the Saints actually went 64% pass while Mark Ingram was suspended. After he returned, the final 12 weeks, they went 49.6% pass. Even if you bring in the two playoff games, still at just 51.4% pass. So this is a run-heavy team at this point. For my run-pass split, I settled at 55-45 because I, that's in line with 2017. I, I wanted to build in a little bit of potential for the record being worse than last year, you know, yeah. when they had the top, the top uh, record in the NFC and, you know, a little bit of room for a potential RB injury. Yeah, I basically split their 2017 and 2018 run rates and got them at 46.5% run. Um, also worth noting the Saints' play volume has been down the past two seasons, which I think is a result of playing a bit slower as a run-heavier offense. Um, they've averaged just 985. I shouldn't say just because 985 – plays per season is still a decent number, but they were at 1,069 plays per season between 2014 and 2016. On to quarterback notes, Drew Brees had a volatile 2018. There's there's still some of the upside. He hit 30-plus fantasy points in 40% of his games, but he also fell short of 10 fantasy points in four of his games. Two of those 30-plus outings came in the four games that Mark Ingram missed. Another came in that week five return game where Alvin Kamara didn't play very much. Breeze was QB six in fantasy points over the first four weeks of the season. He was then QB 11 from week five on. That was the first game that Mark Ingram returned. And then QB 14 from week seven on following their bye. And when I say week five, week seven on, that's taking out uh, week 17 where Breeze didn't play at all. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the the thing with Breeze, and it's been this way for a while, is the home road splits. Um, at home last season, 322 yards, three touchdowns per game. 
28.1 fantasy points per game at home. Would have ranked second among quarterbacks behind only Patrick Mahomes. On the road, 218 yards, 1.4 touchdowns per game. He would have been quarterback 29 in points per game, just looking at his road games. Breeze finished as a top 12 quarterback in only two of his eight games away from the Superdome. So, you know, you're pretty much, you're getting, you're still getting an elite fantasy quarterback at home. On the road, though, he's pretty much useless. Yeah, and I think they'll even work in some of those not great games at home. So it certainly did have big games at home still, even after Mark Ingram was back. Mm-hmm. But I mean, there there's stuff like a four touchdown game on 22 pass attempts <laughs> against Atlanta late in the season. Yeah. yeah, is Drew Brees more likely to do that than other quarterbacks? Yes, but is any quarterback likely to do that often? No. Yep, that's fair. He still got the ultimate ceiling. But a lower volume overall makes him more of a platoon quarterback, a QB2 in fantasy right now. And he's still up at QB8 in June ADP on play draft. Right. And he was still super efficient last year, near the, near the top of the league in completion rate, yards per attempt, all that stuff. But yeah, just 16th in the league in pass attempts. So he finished just eighth among quarterbacks in fantasy points. That followed a 10th place finish in 2017. So a guy who had been, he'd been a top six fantasy quarterback in each of his first 11 seasons with the Saints. Now he's, you know, sort of drifted to back end quarterback one territory um, over the past two years. And you have the fact that he turned 40 in January. So at some point, you know, he's going to, he's going to hit that wall. Um, So if you, you know, if that happens with the decline in volume, then, then, you know, he's, he's going to, he's going to sink down the fantasy rankings. Not if Tom Brady keeps moving the wall. (laughs) On to running back notes, Alvin Kamara. His yards per carry, yards per catch, predictably dipped last year. 6.1 yards per carry down to 4.6. 10.2 yards per catch down to 8.8. But his rushing role grew. His carries went from 7.5 a game in his rookie season to 12.9 last year. And even after Mark Ingram returned, Kamara was still averaging 12.5 carries per game. Seventh among all running backs in total touches. Only Ezekiel Elliott, Saquon Barkley, Christian McCaffrey, Todd Gurley, David Johnson, Joe Mixon were ahead of him. Among running backs with at least 100 total touches, just three guys scored more PPR points per touch. They were James White, Tariq Cohen, and Jalen Richard. And I think people will notice from those three names that all three of those guys are receiving heavy running backs. So that reinforces what we already knew, that a reception is worth more than a carry to a running back. So I'm not worried about Alvin Kamara carrying less than the few guys ahead of him in ADP because he will always bring that receiving value and because he's likely to stay touchdown efficient. Yeah. To me, the only question with Kamara this season is, does he see more work with Mark Ingram gone and Latavius Murray in his place? And if so, you know, how much does his volume climb over those first four games last season with the Mark Ingram out? Kamara had 91 total touches, 611 total yards, six touchdowns. He easily led all running backs in PPR points over those four games. He finished three of those those four weeks as the number one running back in PPR. So, you know, that's the type of ceiling he has if the Saints were to, you know, give him something closer to that type of workload. Like you said, even after Mark Ingram returned, so even if Latavius Murray steps right into Ingram's role, Kamara still finished fifth among running backs in PPR points from week five on. So, you know, he's, he's locked in as that top five option and the upside, I think goes to number one, if he sees, you know, more volume this year. Yeah. I mean, is he going to be volatile and and probably more volatile touch wise than the other guys who get closer to 20 carries per game? Yeah. But 41% of saints carries overall, 46% of their red zone carries, 49% of their carries inside the 10 39% inside the five last year. Those aren't even 
that shows that he got the ball a little bit more as they got closer to the goal line. Those weren't even high numbers, though, relative to the rest of the league. It was just 17th in red zone carry share, according to Pro Football Reference. So, you know, there's the question with Latavius Murray, but uh, it's this is not different than what Alvin Kamara had last year with Mark Ingram around, and I'm not worried about him getting the ball in those important areas. Exactly. That's what, I'm, that's what I'm saying. I mean, even if his role stays the same, he's a top five running back, top four running back. And, and I think there's a chance he sees a bigger piece of the pie this year. Of course, Latavius Murray is in town now. 28 of his 34 career touchdowns have come in the red zone, according to Pro Football Reference. Yeah, this is just a great match because Latavius Murray has really been one of the better goal line backs in the, in the, in the NFL lately. Um, he's fourth in the NFL with 26 rushing touchdowns over the past three seasons, and he's been efficient. So, Murray has scored on 36% of his carries inside the 10, 53% of his carries inside the five over the past three seasons. Just to compare that to Mark Ingram, who, uh, you know, Murray's replacing Ingram has scored on 27% of his carries inside the 10 again, versus 36% for Murray. Ingram scored on 44% of his carries inside the five versus 53% for Murray. So you know, even in what I would say would be, you know, a, a worse situation for Murray than Ingram has, has been in. Murray's been more efficient near the goal line. Yeah, he is just 28 days younger than Mark Ingram. They are both headed into their age 29 season. Murray is like, he's like a biggie-sized version of Mark Ingram, like I said. He's 15 pounds heavier, but also uh, like six inches taller. Much faster if you go by their combine 40s, 438 for Latavius Murray, 462 for Mark Ingram. Ingram finished RB28 in PPR points per game last year with that elevated role for Alvin Kamara. Latavius Murray is going RB35 on play draft right now. I think it's I think it's a value spot for him. Yeah, definitely. Um, so Ingram averaged 12.1 carries and 2.3 targets per game in 11 games with Kamara. Um, I, I think Murray could see that volume. We actually haven't projected for for a bit less than that, but he still comes out you know right around running back 30 in our rankings. Uh, they added Buck Allen for minimal money. They've got Dwayne Washington around. They've got Divino Zigbo. They've got Matt Days, who I don't want to forget about just yet. But Murray <laughs> signed a four-year contract that basically locks him in through at least 2020 um, by the dead money that it would take to cut him. Uh, Latavius Murray is Mark Ingram at this point. Yeah, there's not going to be another um, fantasy viable running back here without an injury. Ozigbo is still the guy who interests me. Again, I sort of think he's similar to Murray. Now, we'll see if Ozigbo even makes the team, but if something were to happen to Murray this season, I think Ozigbo would be the guy I'd be most interested in. Yeah, I'd be curious to see how that backfield sorts out behind the top two yeah, yep. over the summer. Pass catcher notes, Michael Thomas. The Saints went just 51.4% pass, as I said, after Ingram returned, including their two playoff games. Michael Thomas still averaged nine targets per game over that span, though. he was, And there were only 10 wide receivers league-wide who averaged nine-plus targets per game for the season. Thomas was one of those guys. So he fell from his ridiculous start to the season, but we knew he was going to, and he remained a top target. Yeah, just a, a target hog. Even with the Saints, you know, passing less over the past two seasons, um, Thomas has ranked sixth and ninth among wide receivers and targets. Saw twenty seven point eight percent of the Saints targets in two thousand seventeen. That climbed to twenty eight point three percent last year. I think he he should be right around that range again in two thousand nineteen. Yeah, I agree. I don't think there's really much to dislike about it. And I mean, you're 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 splitting hairs among those top receivers anyway. He's he's probably doesn't have the target ceiling of. Uh, Devontae Adams, mm-hmm. and Julio Jones, but he has as much touchdown efficiency as anybody and as much catch rate efficiency as anybody. Yeah, you, you mentioned catch rate. 
85% catch rate last year for Michael Thomas. Easily the best all-time among 949 wide receiver seasons of 100-plus targets. The previous high before Michael Thomas was 77.2%. So we do have to expect, you know, pretty decent-sized regression in catch rate. But Thomas also had a 73% catch rate at first his, across his first two NFL seasons. So it's not going to, you know, sink a ton, but he's also, you know, not not going to match 85% again, I don't think. Right. It'll come down, but it'll be up there still. And the another reason to not it really dislike anything about Michael Thomas is there's not a whole lot else to like about other Saints receivers at this point. Yeah. We're going to see how all of it sorts out. But Ted Ginn, even after missing 11 games in the middle of last season with injury, he came back to see eight, seven, and six targets over his final three games, including the two playoff games. So they clearly were not happy with what they got from Traquan Smith. Yeah, Traquan Smith, I mean, had a couple big games that really disappeared beyond that and, and didn't didn't seem like he improved much over the course of the season. So I I still like the guy. We'll see what he does um, this summer. But Ted Ginn would be my pick right now to be the number two wide receiver in New Orleans. But even then, I'm just not sure there's enough targets to go around with Kamara, with Michael Thomas, with Jared Cook, who we'll talk about, who I think is going to mean you know a, a bigger percentage of the targets going to tight end. So I think it's going to be tough for Ginn to see enough looks to be more and like a late round best ball option. I still think he has some decent weekly upside, so he's fine in best ball, but I don't think he's going to be a guy we can count on when we're setting our lineups. Yeah, Saints wide receiver is totally a best ball position for me beyond Michael Thomas at this point. Trick yeah. Smith, you mentioned that had the huge game against the Eagles in week 11 that looked like it was a breakout game at the time. That game, though, wound up accounting for 30.8% of his half PPR points for the season. He had another three catch, two touchdown game in week five that accounted for another 28.4%. So that two games, about 60% of his scoring for the season. And then after he drew 13 targets in that game against the Eagles, had just 14 more over his final seven games, including the playoffs. So I, I agree that there's it, it, it certainly doesn't mean that Traquan Smith is not going to be a good player, and he might be a good player this season. But whereas we were hoping that he would be the upside guy that we're excited about this time yeah. of this year, He's instead somebody we're going to have to watch this summer to see if he's developing. Yeah, I mean, so last year, Saints wide receivers, not named Michael Thomas, combined for just 122 targets. I think that number might even come down this year with Jared Cook in town. So unless we see you know someone like Ted Ginn or Traquan Smith capture you know two-thirds of those targets, I think it's going to be tough to rely on them in, in lineups. Yeah, Cameron Meredith's still around. They brought in Richard Matthews, Austin Carr's there, Keith Kirkwood's there. Those guys are all going to have to prove that we need to pay attention to them. Right. Yeah, this isn't the Saints offense of the past where you, know, you could have you know four pass catchers be viable fantasy options. Right. Over at tight end, though, we've had no true lead tight end since 2016, and that was 81 targets for Kobe Fleener, who we could say that didn't count as a true lead tight end either. But we'll move on from bashing Kobe Fleener. Um, at the time... That was the sixth straight season that a Saints tight end had 81-plus targets. Jared Cook could get us back to that level. Yeah, last year, the Saints tight ends, so it was Ben Watson, Josh Hill, Dan Arnold. Those guys combined for 89 targets. I think that's a pretty fair projection for Cook this year, and that would have ranked seventh among tight ends in targets. And I think, you know, you look at how how talented he is as a pass catcher and obviously playing with Drew Brees, I think he, he should be more efficient than the average tight end. Yeah, easily the biggest talent, I would say, that they've had at the position since Jimmy Graham left. A year younger than Ben Watson was when Watson arrived in 2013. 1.8 more yards per catch career for Jared Cook than Ben Watson has to this point. 
And Cook's coming off career highs in targets, catches, yards, touchdowns, catch rate. He led the Raiders in targets last year. Now he gets the best quarterback that he will have played with to this point. Drew Brees is coming off one of his most efficient seasons, 74.4% completions, 6.5% touchdown rate. Yeah, I mean, Jared Cook was so frustrating for so long, but he's really had two of, I think, his three best NFL seasons in the last two years. He finished ninth among tight ends in yards per route run. In 2017, he was sixth in yards per run route run last year. He finished fourth in Pro Football Focus's receiving grades last year behind only George Kittle, Travis Kelsey, and O.J. Howard. Yeah, he's up at tight end seven because he's a Drew Brees tight end, but I think that's fair in ADP right now. Yep, agreed. Who I like, Latavius Murray at RB35. I will take him straight up over Daryl Henderson, who he is going a full round and six running backs behind. Latavius Murray is also behind Miles Sanders, Tevin Coleman, Darius Geis, Rashad Penny, and slightly ahead of Ronald Jones and Royce Freeman. Out of all those guys, I would say that I think I would take Murray straight up over all those guys every time. Maybe he and Penny I would alternate a little bit. You mentioned Geis in there, right? I'm, I'm taking Geis over Latavius Murray and, and Penny as well, I think. But I, I think Latavius Murray might be my highest own running back in you know the 10 or so drafts I've done so far. I'll take Geis if we get yeah. into training camp and he's healthy and running well. At this point, for me, it's Murray. Yep, that's fair. Yeah, so Latavius Murray, easily my favorite value on the Saints. I think Alvin Kamara, Michael Thomas, Jared Cook, all – fine values where they're going obviously Jared Cook like you said round seven as a seventh tight end off the board I think that's fair Mm -hmm. who don't you like uh Drew Brees early ninth round quarterback eight in basketball it's okay because again I think you could still get top three production out of the guy at home but it's really the fact Carson Wentz Cam Newton even Jameis Winston going behind Drew Brees I'm gonna wait and get those guys rather than taking Brees yeah, I don't think that there's all that much difference between Drew Brees and Jared Goff in terms of what you get uh, with the high side and low side at sure. this point. Um, even Ben Roethlisberger, more than two rounds later, Dak Prescott, Philip Rivers, Kirk Cousins, much later. I, I think that you know previously, I mean, obviously you're drafting him a lot higher, but one of the benefits of drafting Brees is you don't have to take anybody else until late. Now right. I think you really have to draft him, planning to platoon him with somebody that's more solid. Yeah, and again, I mean, early ninth round, I guess that's okay. Mm-hmm. An okay spot to take a you know platoon quarterback, but it's 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 more Wentz and Newton going behind Breeze that, that makes me not like him at ADP. Yeah, I agree. On to the Buccaneers, where they, of course, have a relevant coaching change because Bruce Arians takes over for Dirk Cutter, who moved to Atlanta. Arians offenses, we're all we all get excited when Bruce Arians arrives, but his offenses have actually fared well in yardage and less well in scoring so far from 2009 forward when he was an offensive coordinator in Pittsburgh six of nine offenses in that span under Arians ranked top 12 in yardage just Mm -hmm. four of them ranked top 12 in scoring and only twice in that span has a Bruce Arians offense finished higher in scoring than it did in yardage yeah I had the same sort of uh thought when I started digging into Arians I sort of I, I thought he was I thought he had a better history than he actually does. Um, so 14 total seasons as a head coach or offensive coordinator. He's had four teams land in the top 10 in total offense, but he's also had six teams finish 22nd or lower in total offense. So he, he's sort of been boomer boss, which I'm sure is, you know, largely due to the personnel he has at his disposal. And I do think he has an explosive offense at his disposal this year. So I'm still, I'm still optimistic about the Bucks offense. 
Yeah, I'm not saying that Bruce Arians is bad for them, but I went in thinking, all right, let's see how good the Bruce Arians history was. And I was like, oh, wait a second. Maybe I shouldn't be so excited. Same. Yep. Um, He does inherit an offense that has leaned pass for two straight years. He has leaned pass uh, more recently compared with his Pittsburgh days. Uh, It was the sixth most pass-heavy offense in the league last year in Tampa. And Arians, as I said, 58% pass pass or less in each of his five seasons as Pittsburgh offensive coordinator. He has been 60% uh, or more. I'm sorry, overall, over the past six seasons, his offenses have gone 60% pass. Yeah, five of his last six offenses have finished top 15 in pass rate. Um, the the Bucks obviously, there's probably no team that's more built to be a pass-heavy offense when you look at what they have at wide receiver and tight end versus what they have in the backfield. So I, I think it's pretty easy to project the Bucks to be one of the pass-heaviest teams in the league. Yeah, I agree with that. And Bruce Arians' post-Pittsburgh offenses have also done well on play volume. So have recent Bucks offenses. I landed at 62% pass for this year's Bucks. 1,054 total plays. Yep, 61% pass for me, and that, that might be too low. <laughs> yeah. If you put the Jameis Winston numbers together with the Ryan Fitzpatrick numbers last year, you had fantasy's number two quarterback. I know that we've said that before on this podcast. <laughs> Winston alone in 2017 ranked seventh in the league in passing yards per game, including two injury-shortened outings. If you take just his full games from 2017, he easily led the league that year in passing yards per game. And then Bruce Arians arrived saying good things about Winston. There were questions about whether the Bucks should move on from Winston, yeah. what he has ahead of him. Bruce Arians came in saying, I've known this guy for a while. He's an excellent quarterback. Uh, we're going to roll with him. Yeah, and I'm with Arians there because, I mean, Winston's still a young guy. He, he also posted a personal best in completion rate last year, 64.6%. He matched a career high with 7.9 yards per attempt, posted a career high quarterback rating. So I, I think the guy should still be ascending, like you said, produced in fantasy when, when he was on the field last year, still has lots of weapons at his disposal, despite the fact that the Bucks did lose Adam Humphreys and Deshaun Jackson, who combined for about close to a third of their targets and re, uh, receiving yards and receptions last year. But again, you know, in Mike Evans, Chris Goddard and O.J. Howard, there's still enough for Winston to work with. Winston seems like a turd off the field, but I think on the field his issues have been uh, uh, have been exaggerated a little bit. Yep. Running back notes, Ronald Jones averaged 6.1 yards per carry in college, 9.4 yards per catch for his USC career, and then totally disappeared as a rookie. But he's generating some buzz so far this year. G- GM Jason Light said in mid-April, quote, the guy we're all collectively most impressed with is Rojo. Uh, and then Bruce Arians in late May had similarly good things to say about him, saying that he liked, really liked where Ronald Jones was at. So Ronald Jones is the buzzy running back there, but it's also pushing his ADP way up. Yeah, and I, mean, I think most importantly for Ronald Jones is the Bucks didn't add any, any significant competition to the backfield this offseason, which was surprising. Um, so, you know, that that's sort of the reasons to be excited about him. I still, I'm not sold on him as a player, obviously, after last year. Bruce Arians, I think, is also a mark against Ronald Jones this season. Only four of Arians' 14 offenses have finished better than 18th in rushing yards. He's also, prior to landing David Johnson in you know his last few years in Arizona, he had produced just one top 12 PPR running back in his first 11 years and only three 
running backs finished better than 20th in PPR points in Arians first 11 years. And I wonder if it's telling that he hasn't even projected 30 touches per game for Ronald Jones. <laughs> right, right. Uh, Peyton Barber, of course, is still around and he controlled 60% of the carries last year for the Bucks. That was the eighth largest share among all running backs. Mm-hmm. Only 20 receptions to go with it, though. Barber finished 44th in PPR points per game. He averaged 3.7 yards per carry, 4.6 yards per catch, ranked 41st and 39th in Football Outsiders rushing efficiency metrics out of 47 qualifiers. So the reason that we're all jumping on Ronald Jones a little bit at this point at the first sign of positive news is that we don't want Peyton Barber to be the main running back again. Yeah, I mean, sadly, Peyton Barber ranked ninth in the NFL in carries last season. Like you said, wasn't good on the ground. It was even worse in the passing game. 4.6 yards per catch. Um, dead last in both yards per target and yards per route run among 63 running backs who saw 20 plus targets. So, you know, if, if Ronald Jones can just be something, you know, he, he should pass Peyton Barber on the depth chart. Yeah, I agree. Pass catcher notes, unless you have any, anything about Bruce Anderson. (laughs) No, no. Pass catcher notes. You already alluded to it. Adam Humphreys and Deshaun Jackson are gone. They left behind 28.6% of last year's targets when they departed. So that leaves lots on the table for everybody. And you don't really have to decide whether you think Evans gets the biggest piece or Chris Godwin gets the biggest piece or whatever. There's a lot left for people. Mike Evans last year beat his previous high in yards per catch by 1.4, beat his previous high in yards per target by 2.4, beat his previous high in catch rate by 5.6 percentage points. And now Jameis Winston has also increased his completion rate the past two years and posted his two highest yards per attempt rates. Right. Um, Evans, second among 82 wide receivers in yards per target, seventh in yards per route run, 13th in PFFs receiving grades, finished ninth among wide receivers in PPR points, on 138 targets, which was actually a bit lower than what he averaged over his first four NFL seasons. He had that 173 target season back in 2016. I think there's a chance he gets back up into that territory with all those targets that Humphreys and uh, Deshaun Jackson leave behind. Yeah, and I think it seems like people generally assume you have to like either Mike Evans or Chris Godwin this year, but I absolutely do not think that's the case. I think you can like both players. I don't know about adding both of them to a lineup setting roster, but you can like both of them. Chris Godwin, of course, the whole buzz train really started rolling when Bruce Arians said uh, back in March that Godwin could play the Larry Fitzgerald role and quote and be quote close to a 100 catch guy. <laughs> now, I talked about the the projection for David Johnson touches from back in Arizona before. So uh, even if you don't want to believe the 100 catch projection, I, I don't think that Bruce Arians actually worked this out on a spreadsheet. I think that he's making up numbers a little bit. But when you say that about a guy heading into his third season, that says I see a big role for this player who is naturally facing more opportunity with Deshaun Jackson and Adam Humphreys gone. Yeah, and and Chris Godwin should see a bigger role because he's been really good through two seasons. Um, 9.1 yards per target, that's 16th best best among 74 wide receivers with 100-plus targets over the past two seasons. He's 12th among 80 wide receivers in yards per route run, Um, and and he's been good when he's got looks. Um, 14 career games with six-plus targets. He's averaged 4.6 catches, 71 yards, 0.5 touchdowns per game. I think think he's going to have quite a few games this year with six with uh, six plus targets. I have seen it pointed out that two of his best games came in week 17s the past two years. I don't think it matters that it's a week 17. I think that you have to realize that 
Chris Godwin has seen increased opportunity the past two years because other guys in his offense have gotten injured at that point in the season and left targets on the field, which is exactly what's happening now. Yep, exactly. Others, Brashad Perriman arrived, Bobo Wilson's still around. They've got rookies, Demarcus Lodge, Scotty Miller, Anthony Johnson. The other wide receiver I want to highlight a little bit right now, though, is Justin Watson, mm-hmm. who only played 73 snaps last year as a fifth-round rookie. That followed, though, a good career at Penn, 74-plus catches, over 1,000 yards in three of his seasons, 33 career receiving touchdowns. 7.7 yards per carry on 44 rushing attempts, so he was the kind of guy that they wanted to get the ball to however they could. Then Justin Watson's pro day last year, he ran his 40 in the low 4.4s. He had a 40-inch vertical, uh, and I, I mention him because behind those top two wideouts on this Tampa team, it should be a pretty open competition for targets. Brashad Perriman seems to be working ahead as the number three right now, but Justin Watson did get in when Perriman was missing some springtime. And there's a chance that he wins something this this summer. Yeah, and I think there is. You know, I probably call it an outside shot, but I think there's some shot that the third wide receiver here, you know, becomes at least you know somewhat of a fantasy asset if the Bucks are going to be as pass heavy as we think they are. Perriman and Scotty Miller are the two guys I've sort of read about, um, you know, creating some buzz in spring workouts. Like you said, though, Perriman missed some time with injuries in June. You know, that's been an issue for him. So it, it's a wait and see situation. But I do think one of these guys could at least be on our radar at some point this season. Yeah, and Perriman has already busted his way out of both Baltimore and Cleveland, so he he's off my radar at this point until he says otherwise. That's, that's fair. O.J. Howard, though, of course, is the guy we've been waiting to get to here, so why don't you start us off in the, the O.J. Howard case? I mean, the, the guy's been awesome through two. I mean, he, he was an awesome prospect coming into the league. You know, had a couple of nice seasons at Alabama, tested well, was the 19th overall pick of the 2017 draft. And then since arriving, he ranks number one in yards per catch and yards per target among 27 tight ends with 50-plus grabs over the past two years. He, he finished fifth in yards per route run as a rookie, climbed a third in yards per route run last year behind only George Kittle and Travis Kelsey, right ahead of Zach Ertz on that list. Um, he's been a touchdown-scoring machine, 11 scores on 60 career catches. The problems have been volume, first of all, 2.8 targets per game in 2017, 4.8 targets per game last year and then injuries he's missed eight games with right high ankle sprain in 2017 missed two games with that missed six games last year with more right foot and ankle issues so those are the concerns but when this guy's healthy I think you know he's going to benefit from the departures of Adam Humphreys and Deshaun Jackson I think again you know Howard's right in that mix to be the number four tight end in fantasy yeah I, I definitely agree with that with the, him being in the mix the questions that obviously we won't be able to answer really until the season gets going are does Dirk Cutter's departure mean bad things for the touchdown rate for OJ Howard? You know, we talk about it being a positive for Austin Hooper, maybe mm-hmm. it's a negative for the tight ends he leaves behind. Does the change in offense mean bad news for OJ Howard's receiving yardage, which is already higher than you can really expect at 16.6 yards per catch each of the past two seasons for a tight end. And then does Bruce Arians' limited history with tight ends matter? Uh, Really has had basically nothing in terms of fantasy viability at the position in his career as a coordinator and head coach to this point. Heath Miller had a career high of 76 catches in 2009, overall averaged 4.8 targets per game in five seasons with Arians as his OC. Yeah, I mean, I, again, I think Arians is a pretty smart offensive mind, so I trust him to make Howard a big part of this passing game. And really, when you look at it, you know, there, there's no 
pass catching ability in the backfield. We talked about the wide receiver core having question marks beyond the top two. So I think Howard almost has to play a significant role this season. Yeah. And that's why I, you know, I think if any of these were big concerns for me, then OJ Howard would be like 11th, but it's, you know, it's the reason that I maybe lean uh, another direction when we talk about guys at ADP, which we'll get to again in a minute, Cameron Brait, We'll mention him quickly. He's heading into just his age 28 season. I don't think he's headed for anything fantasy-wise this year as long as O.J. Howard stays healthy. His playing time has trended down even with O.J. Howard missing the time that we mentioned over the past two years. But the the big contract that Cameron Brait has, there's no dead money beyond this season, so I expect him to get cut after this year. There's still time left in his career for him to catch on elsewhere and, and find some value. Yeah, we'll see beyond 2019 for this year. I think, you know, he's he's a he's a tight end handcuff. If Howard misses time, we're gonna be grabbing great off waiver wires and you know probably starting in most cases. I think he you know, he, he should play a bigger role this year than he did last if Howard misses time with Adam Humphreys and Deshaun Jackson gone. Yeah, that's I mean that's where I think he, he might stand to be overrated because I'll I'll go with I'll ride with OJ Howard under Bruce Arians because I think he is a a, a much better athlete much better player, much higher upside receiver than most guys at the position. I don't think that for Cameron Braid. So he's still going to be maybe like tight end 15 range if O.J. Howard were to go down. You forget how crappy tight ends are once we get into the season. (laughs) (laughs) We'll be on the radar, but I'm not going to be jumping at him. All right. Who I like, for me, everyone seems appropriately priced among the Bucks right now. Yep, that's exactly what I have. I mean, I think Mike Evans, wide receiver eight is about right. Chris Godwin, wide receiver 19. That's about right. OJ Howard. I mean, I, I love the guy, but Evan Ingram's going eight picks later. Hunter Henry going 10 picks later. If, if I'm weighing those, you know, I do prefer Ingram and Hunter Henry. But again, I think Howard's fine. You know, he's a guy you probably want to get some shares of in the mid fifth round. Then Jameis Winston going quarterback 11. That's actually a couple spots lower than we have him ranked. So I think, you know, he's another, he's another one of the, you know, 15 quarterbacks you can target in the double digit rounds of your drafts. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I, I was hoping that Jameis Winston would stay outside of the top 12, but I think Bruce Arians, just the name, pushed Jameis Winston into the top 12. Yeah, uh, And I think he's just kind of appropriately priced in that range, even if I have him projected a little bit higher. I'm not grabbing any shares of O.J. Howard in round five because I just don't think that he gives me an advantage there over, say, Austin Hooper seven spots later at the position where I can just wait and grab multiple guys and get just as much touchdown upside. Yeah. I, I, I feel like Howard gives you a higher weekly ceiling, but I, I'd, I'd have to actually look at the numbers to say that for sure, I guess. No, we'll look forward to that on, on a future <laughs> podcast. I'd certainly agree that Evan Ingram and, and Hunter Henry at less of a draft investment yeah. are, are better picks. Yeah. And then who I don't like on the box, it's Ronald Jones, who his ADPs just climbed too much and he's still at running back 36 late late seventh round so he could definitely outproduce that price tag but i i need to see i need to see it in august before i'm actually going to draft him there yeah i'm glad that i got some ronald jones early because he started the draft season you know like back in february he was going in like round 13 round 14 he was an easy pick at that point so i'm glad i got my jones shares before he jumped up to this level yep he hasn't quite reached don't like level for me yet i think he's okay there because if you can get a guy that ends up being the number one running back for his team then you know pretty much anybody is uh, a decent value at that stage. Yeah, I mean, he's going one spot behind Latavius Murray, right? So I'm I'm targeting Murray there, and if I, if I don't get Murray, I'm probably just going to pass on running backs. 
Yeah, definitely taking Latavius Murray over Ronald Jones, too. That's going to do it for this NFC South edition of the Projections Podcast. Head over to DraftSharks.com now to listen to every episode of this series and to see exactly who we project, how we project all of these players that we've discussed here, plus hundreds more. You can also find us on Twitter. We are at DraftSharks. Jared is at SmolaDS. I am at ShaufDS. It's S-C-H-A-U-F. For Jared Smola and the rest of the DraftSharks crew, I'm Matt Schaaf saying thanks so much for swimming with us. 